Once upon a time. In a land far away. I'm Katrina. And I'm Jeff. And welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat. While we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. We're happy to have you listening. Today, we're going to be talking about Marie Laveau and some voodoo in New Orleans as a kind of celebration of Mardi Gras and my personal enjoyment of Louisiana. But first, Jeff, we have some corrections to make that I'm super excited about. We do. I've never been more happy to be corrected in my life. So we got a wonderful message uh, from Aurora on Instagram, I'm assuming. No, it was on Facebook. On Facebook. So yeah, I mean, if you have something you want to write in about, you can contact us on Facebook or Instagram. Aurora contacted us on Facebook and said the following. I'm not going to read her whole message, but I'll read kind of parts of it. Hey, guys. So Jeff got a bad translation or write-up on East of the Sun, West of the Moon, because the troll princess definitely has a nose three L's long, not three eels long. So Aurora was very generous in assuming that I had a bad translation or something because that's what I assumed as well when I first heard that I had made a mistake. But then I went back to the exact translation that I read and realized the problem is just that I do not know how to read because it did in fact (laughs) say L's, E-L-L-S, and not E-L's, E-E-L-S. So Jeff, what did she tell you that L's were? Yeah, I was going to get there. It's really interesting. This is the part where I was like, I'm super glad she wrote in because not only did Aurora say that we had made a mistake, but she gave us a ton of great information. Um, so what an L is, is a measurement defined as six hand breadths or 48 inches. And it's mainly used for textiles, which first thing I'd like to point out is that when I was like, oh, an eel, it's like three feet long. Like 45 inches is longer than even three feet. So it's like her nose is even longer than we thought it was. <laughs> So the troll was even worse than we imagined. Exactly. What, which now, is, what I want to know now, because when you said eels, how I imagined her nose like in my head was that it was like drooping down off of her face. But now I wonder if it was just sticking straight out. Yeah, I always imagined that it was sticking straight out. And I wonder if they would like use her in like a Joanne's fabric situation where they take <laughs> her into like, like a fabric store and, and use her nose to help them measure like, out. Oh, Could I get like, three L's of fabric, please? <laughs> Perfect. So, Aurora continues, which, okay, weird and random, but it is in fact important that this oddly specific measurement we're using, because we're talking about a Norse story and textile magic. I was like, textile magic? Please continue. (laughs) Textile magic, or satyr, is a big thing for the Vikings. Big, huge, three L's long. All the fake goddesses, the Norse Norns, the Greek... Did you say fake goddesses or fate? Fate. With a T. Oh, because I was just I was just gonna say what was super exciting to me about her kind of writing in and pointing this out is how much it ties into like when we talked about Mother Holly and Perchta, mm. where like they're these old pagan, usually deriving from Norse goddesses, and they're all related back to textiles because it's like Perchta, like if you didn't finish doing your like spinning, 
and you just like left it like on a distaff, then she would like yeah. come in and like slit your belly open because like yeah, she, because it was very important. But also, what Aurora was saying about like the fates. I mean, even if you imagine right now Greek, like if you had like Greek yeah. fates, I mean, we've seen like images of like the fates, like holding like a thread. And that kind of same imagery was in like Norse mythology. I right off the top of my head don't know which came first or if they both happened simultaneously. But like that, the textiles and like women's work in fabric and spinning things is something that comes up a lot and we will be discussing it more like on the podcast because yeah. like it, you will spinning wheels, distaffs, like carding combs we've talked about, like it yeah. all comes up and reoccurring themes of textile work, but 100% like correct about it being tied to fate. And the word for fairy tales even derives from, Talking about etymology, it goes back to fate tales, tales related to people's like fates, their destinies. And so we're definitely going to be talking more about like textile magic and stuff in like a later podcast. So I'm super glad that she. Me too. Heard you mess up and was like, I'm going to fix this man. Totally. And, you know, it's, to- it's completely relevant. In a even wonderful, just to kind the- way. She did it in a wonderful, kind she way. She <laughs> really did. And, it, and you know, the, it was interesting, too, because the whole textile thing, we, br- we talked about that in the episode because it's so related even just to the East of the Sun, West of the Moon story because there's, like you kind of already mentioned, the carding comb, the spinning wheel, so many other things were textile related. And, yeah, it's, she quoted a bunch of stuff talking about uh, from a book, North Goddess Magic, Trance Work, Mythology, and Ritual by Alice Carlsdotter. And she said something along the lines, the, the author of this work said, To spin is to make order out of chaos, to create something from nothing. The drafting zone, the place between the loose fiber and the growing thread where the drawing out takes place, is the point of the eternal present. The place of that which is becoming. The cutting edge of time where deeds are drawn from the unmanifest future and are joined to the skein of the past. Whoa. Man, you said that really like rough and powerfully. <laughs> it was just cool. I want to read this whole book, but it would take me like six hours because after every paragraph, it'd be like, whoa. Anyway, the other thing that I really loved about uh, when Aurora wrote in is she said, you know, oh, yeah, you can go ahead and use my, you know, mention my first name on the podcast. But then they're going to think that you made it up because it'd be like someone named Aurora sent you information on spinning and magic. Okay, sure she did. <laughs> so not only is Aurora very smart and knowledgeable, but she's also hilarious. So thanks again, <laughs> Aurora, for writing in and correcting my mistake. Uh, one of many that either has not been caught yet or has yet to be made in the future. <laughs> So get excited, people, to hear our new mistakes that we make. <laughs> None will be as embarrassing as that whole Bilbo Gandalf mess up from oh, yeah. whatever episode that was. That's something oh. I should have known. Yeah, and I, I don't think my sister's over it yet either. So I was wanting to do kind of a Mardi Gras-themed episode because I love Mardi Gras. Some of you might know it as Fat Tuesday, Strove Tuesday. Um, It comes before Lent. It ends on Ash Wednesday, on the Christian calendar. 
And so I lived in Louisiana for a couple years when I was a little kid growing up. And I absolutely loved Mardi Gras, mostly for the king cake. I'm not going to lie. I'm all about (laughs) the donuts. Just, yeah, giant donut pastry, like sugar. Delicious. I'm all about the sugar. So I wanted to do a Mardi Gras themed episode. So I was trying to force it a little bit because I was like, are there any tall tales around Mardi Gras? And what I found was that there's a lot of, they're like a cross between urban legends, ghost stories, and tall tales. The people who told some of these tall tales, I think they actually were scared and like believed that these like things really happened. I would classify the first tale that I'm going to tell you as a tall tale because it's a story that involves real people, Mm -hmm. but kind of events that are beyond human explanation that kind of may or may not have happened. Um, but are definitely told in the style of, no, this really happened, just like we talked about with, like, that tall tales require both the listener to believe that they really happened, but to also simultaneously know that they didn't really happen. Yeah. And for the author to be aware, or the storyteller to be aware of that same dynamic. So, I'm going to tell you a tale about Marie Laveau. All right. Voodoo Priestess. Love it already. (laughs) You should make a TV show about that. So, there is a TV show about Marie Laveau. Oh, really? Well, she was like, apparently she was a main character on one of the American Horror Stories. Oh, wow. one that, except, I haven't seen it. I didn't research into it. My cousin told me that in it, Marie Laveau is white. And she's not, she's not a white woman. Weird. So, yeah, when my cousin said that to me, when she was like, no, I think she was a white woman, I was like, she absolutely was not. (laughs) (laughs) That's so weird. I was just thinking, you know, like, Xena Warrior Princess, Marie Laveau, Voodoo Priestess. Yes. It sounded very similar. I was like, I can see the marketing possibilities already. (laughs) So, the story that I'm going to tell you is out of the book Voodoo in New Orleans by Robert Talent. And I cannot stress this enough. I don't like this book. (laughs) And (laughs) I I will explain why later. But yeah, I am citing my source, but I I am not personally recommending this source to anyone. (laughs) In this tall tale, the first real publicity of Marie Laveau's activities was in 1852 when she performed such a miraculous voodoo act that not even the newspaper could help themselves but to report it. Mm. A Jean Adam and an Anthony DeZille were condemned to die for the murder of a Creole uh, servant girl. The girl had been alone in the house of her mistress and... These two men thought that the house was abandoned and empty, and they had entered it so that they could steal from the mistress of the home. And when they got into the house, there was this girl there, and so they slit her throat, 
and stole. And then they were later arrested. And after they were arrested and stood trial, they were sentenced and condemned to be hanged. So Marie Laveau was famous for going to the prison Uh either to perform voodoo magic ahead of time for the trials to stop judges from sentencing or to lighten sentences. But she was known for going in there and even, even if it was just to bring them food or to pray with them. Yeah. And so she was often seen going to these two men who had been condemned to die because they wanted to, clean their souls, cleanse their souls, pray, and become better before their death. So when the day of their execution arrived, all of New Orleans gathered for the event. The gallows were um, surrounded by people, chairs were set up, everything like was set up <laughs> to watch this public hanging. People were walking up and down the stands with selling popcorn and... Probably. That's horrible. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was in New Orleans Square. So, I mean, you probably could go and get some beignets and then come and sit down and just like enjoy the morning. And it was a sunny, beautiful day. And so lots of people had turned up. People had brought their kids because I guess that's a thing that people do. And so a before giant television com- was invented. Yeah. I mean, what else were you going to do? So a giant crowd had gathered on this beautiful bright day to watch this hanging and a hush went over the crowd as they, as the guards took these two men out of the prison and were bringing them up to the stand. So one of the men they said was extremely intoxicated, which I don't, I don't think that they let people get drunk anymore before their execution. So I thought it was interesting that they were like, he was roaring drunk. And so it was Anthony was the one that was drunk. And Jean was fainting, almost unconscious. Like he was beside himself. They had to like drag him up the stairs. And uh, the story that I read said they sat like two chairs underneath the rope. Uh And they sat the men down on the chairs And all the while, the drunk Anthony was screaming for mercy at the top of his lungs, and he was just raising his hands up to the sky and calling down the powers of God. And as he was screaming and raving, and as they were, the executioners were sitting them down on the chairs and putting the black hoods over their head before putting Mm -hmm. the rope over the head, the wind started to kick up and a giant black cloud started to loom over the whole city and it was coming and the wind was blowing and everybody was, you know, feeling nervous. Like, was it going to rain? Is there going to be a downpour? And right before they, you know, pulled the lever to hang the men, the rain just started pouring down on the crowd and with like a crack of thunder, they the executioner pulled the lever and everybody watched the men drop down and then saw the ropes hanging limply because oh, the wow. men 
had slipped out of the the ropes and had just fallen onto the ground below. Oh my which god! Which in this which in the story it says that like they were damaged from falling that far. Like right, they weren't like unscathed, um, but they also weren't dead. I'm assuming. But they yeah, they weren't dead, but they were like they had like broken limbs and they now were bleeding and screaming. Oof. And yeah, like, so it was really upsetting for like anybody who had seen it. And so it's like pouring rain. There's this kind of panic. People started to like rush the, uh, the gallows and it's the policeman apparently had to like beat the people back to get them like back into like their seats. And they picked up the men and they took them back into the prison. So after about 10 minutes, like the, the rain had kind of stopped like downpouring and it was still like cloudy and black and thundering, just like a big storm. And then they brought the men back out and hung them. And this time what normally happens during a hanging happened and they (laughs) were hung. And then the newspaper noted like, and at the end of like all of this happening, a figure in the front stood up and it was Marie Laveau. And so the storm was like attributed to like her trying to use her voodoo powers to like save these like prisoners, but her voodoo like wasn't strong enough. But in reality, the hanging of those two men was apparently the last public hanging that ever happened in New Orleans. Yeah. Because of that event, they were still hang like they were still hanging people, like they're still executing prisoners, um, just not publicly. Well, yeah, because listening to the story was kind of like, wait a minute, was she trying to make it better or worse for them? Because it ended up being kind of worse because they fell and like were got all messed up and then they were still hung later on. But I see what you like. It made sense at the end. You're like, you know, the story is kind of like to say she was trying to interfere with her voodoo, but she wasn't able to because, you know, ultimately they were hung. Yeah. So I also love the little detail where you're like, they fell through and they were really hurt. And it was like, and that was like really traumatic for everyone watching, like watching people hang to death as was supposed to happen. Wouldn't, you know, <laughs> as it wasn't supposed to have been. <laughs> yeah. They were like upset. Like, Oh, like, that didn't go according to plan. Whoa, Maybe we whoa, should. Whoa. St- we came here to see people die, not to be gravely injured. Okay. <laughs> like, I didn't want to watch that guy fall and start bleeding. That's gross. I just wanted to see him get hung. Jeez. Uh, So what's interesting to me about what you just pointed out that like, well, this story doesn't seem to necessarily point to her like having any mystical powers. There is a lot going on at this time to blame voodoo for kind of bad things that happened in the area. So what was going on at the time in Louisiana was that voodoo was going on and kind of straddled the civil war Mm. and being in the South, there was a lot of fear of black people gaining more power politically and like also like economically just people didn't want black people to like have any power. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that they were kind of trying to, instill fear and black of black people at the time was to point at voodoo for problems that were going on. 
Right. So if a child went missing, they would say, oh, it was kidnapped to be used in like a voodoo ritual. Mm-hmm. If a hanging went poorly, they it's a, it was easy to like point and say Marie Laveau did it. Even though the only part that she showed up in that story was that like, yes, she frequented like the prison. But then it was just at the end where she just like popped up. And it's not like, oh, the guys got away with it. Or it's not yeah. even a clear like... Because I would even understand the story better if she had a reason, especially for disliking them. But the way that the story is written, it makes it sound like she wanted to help them. Yeah. Which I think if I was going to try to assign a motive to her, it would, if I was making up the story, is I would say that she was trying to injure them, that she was trying to get back at them, like even more. Right. I mean, he, these two, they were Frenchmen. Uh-huh. They had murdered a Creole girl. Yeah. And so I don't understand in the story like why the newspaper would blame her for a storm happening, except that a lot of blame and suspicion was being pointed at people who may or may not have even been practicing voodoo. Right. So another big question is, like, who is Marie Laveau? Right, yes. And the reason why this is also, like, a huge, interesting, like, controversy is because there were two Marie Laveaus. Dun, dun, dun! Um, They were a mother and a daughter. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So the second Marie Laveau, her name was Marie Eucharist Laveau. A lot of the time... Back then, mothers would give their daughters their first name. Okay. And so there were actually tons of Marie Laveaux in Louisiana at the time. Uh-huh. And so when people go back and they're trying to like do research, it's very confusing because it's hard to tell whether the first Marie Laveau is the one they're talking about, like the, the mother, or yeah. whether it's the daughter. Because they'll say like, oh, and this person was frequenting the prison because she was like a 60-year-old woman visiting these people. And then also in the same year, they'll be like, Marie Laveau was dancing with a snake in Congo Square. And it's like, wait, the 60-year-old woman? And they're like, no, she was young and pretty. And so it's like, I don't understand how this woman, and it kind of added to the mystique even. Right, because it's like, oh, one minute she's 60 years old, the next she's a young woman. It must be the magic that she's doing this by or whatever. I mean, if they want to really get creative, they can just be like, yeah, when children go missing, she's (laughs) stealing their youth. (laughs) Yeah. If I was making up the stories, I'd make them more interesting like that. Another thing that adds a lot to the mysticism and misunderstanding of Marie Laveau is that the book that is considered kind of the authority figure on like voodoo in new Orleans and really got a lot of American readers interested in voodoo or thinking that they knew a lot about voodoo was a book. The book that I talked about voodoo in new Orleans by Robert talent Mm-hmm. And he wrote this book in the 1940s. And it was part of the Federal Writers Project. 
a program that was to boost the economy during the Great Depression, part of the New Deal, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not really well versed on like American history because I didn't grow up in America. <laughs> so I think I think it was called the I think it was part of the New Deal. But the point of it was they were sending writers who didn't have jobs. So these kind of jobless creators yeah. that during the Great Depression just couldn't make a living. They were sending them on an assignment to collect folklore from different regions uh-huh. of the United States. And so Robert Talent got assigned to New Orleans to learn about voodoo. There are a lot of problems with the way that he was collecting the tales that he was collecting. The biggest problem was that he was a white man in his late 20s that was a product of his time, let's say. Uh (laughs) Again, this is like 1940s was when the book was put out and released, but he was doing this in like the late 30s. The book is extremely problematic in the way that he discusses the the black women that he's talking about, uh, white women that he's talking about, and black men that he talks about. Uh-huh. He's totally fine. The way that he talks about white men is totally fine. <laughs> because he acts like that's the main and most important perspective. <laughs> Which, that's not a great way to go and learn about voodoo in New Orleans, is to go down and say, like, hey, right. tell me about Marie Laveau. And he was going to a lot of white people especially and uh, getting their take on things. And so they had a lot of feelings where they were just like, Oh yeah. Like Marie Laveau is supposed to be this really evil woman. Oh, she was supposed to be this like really bad person. And I heard this story about her, blah, 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 blah. And so it was mostly, I feel like a lot of just like racist gossip. Yeah. Which again is why I am not promoting the book. I read it because again, for a long time, it was considered the resource to understand voodoo in New Orleans, except that Robert Talent did not know anything about voodoo in New Orleans. It was like, it sounds like he wasn't even from New Orleans, so he wasn't like kind of familiar oh, no, or grew not. up around any of this stuff either. So it's like, he just really he is going in blind and has to take whoever he talks to his word for it, <clears throat> which there's, yeah. there's interesting that can happen. Things that can happen when, like, an outsider goes into somewhere and, like, can see things through a different perspective or whatever. But does not sound like that was the best case uh, this time around. No. No. One of my favorite things about uh, the interviews that he did was the complete lack of any evidence. That that was fun. Because one of my favorite things that kind of kept happening, like in the book, is that he would be interviewing people who, and he was interviewing them like 60 years, 50, 60 years after even like Marie Laveau was like alive. Yeah. (laughs) And so um, the stories about her, he was collecting from like kind of older people, but there was this kind of common story where they would, the person that he was interviewing would be saying like, oh, I was at one of the um, Lake Pontchartrain 
kind of festivals, midsummer night festivals, that there was a bunch of like people ritualistically dancing while drums were beating and people would be like killing chickens and eating them. And it was like, they were beating drums and like dancing and eating gumbo is what they were doing. Uh, You have to kill, you have to kill animals to put meat into gumbo. Like I'm just going to say like, uh, I don't know anyway. So, but what they were describing, they were describing it in a way that made it sound like, Oh, it's like so iffy. And then people kept saying, but they were I killing left. chickens and putting them in a stew pot and eating them. It's like, that's how you make soup. Come on. It does sound yeah, way like, more, sounds more like a lyrics to a Doolahan song when you <laughs> slaughtering the chickens, put them in the, them in the pot. cauldron. And so they would be like telling these stories in this like kind of salacious way. Oh, they also very commonly were saying like, like, oh, and people would strip naked and like farther back like in the 1800s like if somebody somebody who could be considered naked if they had taken off their clothes to a level of undress that is not considered appropriate for being in front of somebody of a different race or gender right yeah i was like what's the definition of naked like showing some ankle or some wrists or what's happening here exactly like it was just like oh if a woman like took off her corset (laughs) she was (sighs) naked like if you could see like her decolletage (laughs) probably not that bad but it was like if you were less dressed than you would normally be in public then you were considered naked so even when these people were saying like they stripped naked at the lake it's like well maybe how naked were they Yeah, how naked were they? But my absolute favorite thing was when the people that he was interviewing would say, but I left before the sexual orgy started. (laughs) I'm like, uh, me also. What a rookie move. I know. So now I really just like every time somebody asks me like, oh, how was work today? I just want to be like, I left before the sexual orgy started. (laughs) Because these are supposed to be firsthand witnesses and they are telling this guy something that he's recording as if, oh yeah, it definitely happened. But like nobody in his book ever like witnessed. Yeah. Witnessed the sexual orgy. Like the sexual orgy. We left before. Either they, either they didn't leave before the sexual orgy and they're just lying about it because they didn't want to get into what they were getting into that night or there was no sexual orgy. Yeah. Disappointing. And, I mean, personally, myself, I think like now, anytime somebody's like, oh, how was Thanksgiving at your parents' house? <laughs> no. I'm like, oh, it was really good, but I left before the sexual orgy started. <laughs> I just, anytime somebody asks me how an event went, I'm just going to tell them that. <laughs> Perfect. Are you planning a road trip this year? Think of traveling down part of Route 66. Check out the Jackrabbit gift shop to take a picture on the rabbit that made it famous. Explore the petrified forest to marvel at its unique natural wonders. And when you get hungry, remember that you can stop into Mr. G's to split a pizza with your road tripping crew while you plan your next adventure. Mr. G's Pizza has barbecue chicken wings, toasted subs, cheesy breadsticks, and salads. Enough to satisfy every traveler. And when you're done and ready to get back on the road, 
make sure to check your car for Andy. You don't want to get 30 miles down the road and hear him screaming from the trunk for a bathroom break. Believe me. Get back in the kitchen, Andy. Let Mr. G's fuel your next adventure. So that's a little bit about Marie Laveau and just a tiny bit about like voodoo in New Orleans. Like seriously, a very, very tiny bit. We are definitely going to be revisiting the voodoo later on because it's a huge topic. But one thing that I want to say about it is that the branch of voodoo that started in New Orleans, um, especially that's the kind that I've looked at because there's voodoo all over the world because of the African diaspora. Uh And so they all kind of have their different way of doing things because of what it bumped into and how it morphed. And what I mean by that is for example, in New Orleans, voodoo tradition bumped up into Catholicism and Christianity. And one thing that there is a very close tie to is the idea of spirits on the other side that can be asked for help. Voodoo is uh, back in Africa. A main part of it is about different spirits, different personality spirits Mm -hmm. on the other side. And so if you wanted help with one certain type of problem, you could go to one certain type of spirit on the other side and they have, they have names. I don't know what the, the different ones are in African voodoo, but they, they have individual names. Yeah. And the people who are voodoo priests and priestess, like they have a close intimate relationship with those spirits and kind of know what their personalities are and how to ask them for favors, what to give them like as favors to help them. And they know what kind of problems those spirits are the best at solving. So if there's a spirit that's very close to um, women and very receptive to helping women in women's problems. Then if I was having a difficulty with an abusive husband, I would try to appeal to that spirit on the other side to help me with that problem. Mm -hmm. And where that kind of really bumps into Catholicism is that in Christianity, there are spirits on the other side. There is like the Virgin Mary, there's John the Baptist there's like all the um, like saints and all the saints. The same yeah, way. there's all the different the saints. saints are like the, they're the patron saints of kind of di- different issues. Yeah, different issues, different occupations, and so there's that really close tie-in. And what Marie Laveau, the mother, was seeing a lot of because she was Catholic, she would go to a Catholic church. But one thing that she was seeing a lot of in her community was women's needs that were not being served. Mm -hmm. And in that, at the time, marriage was very, it was a very complex issue in Louisiana because of the constant changing laws. Louisiana in a very short space of time went from being, I think, I think I'm saying this in the right order, Spanish rule, then French rule, and then... 
American rule. I might have switched France and Spain, but I think it was Spain, France, America. And America, too, after they had the Louisiana Purchase, they there were a lot of changes that happened very quickly Yeah, that revolved around who could marry who. And in Louisiana, there had been just a lot of intermarrying between a lot of different groups between the French trappers, the Spanish explorers, the native Americans that lived in the area. Yeah. And also the African diaspora, anybody who had been put on a slave ship and sent over to America could end up there. And also people who, after the St. Domenico, I think it was, the um, so revolutions that happened in the Caribbean islands, a lot of people would get on like boats and they would head up into America. And so they, there were, so there were a lot of people of a lot of different colors and the rules were changing a lot about who could get married and who couldn't. And in the Catholic church, they had rules too about who could marry and who couldn't. And also about what babies would be baptized. Mm. So you had a lot of single mothers who weren't allowed to get married in the church and be recognized as married in the Catholic church. But they were having babies and they wanted those babies to be baptized. They wanted those babies to be protected. And Marie Laveau was kind of a champion for kind of taking these babies and finding ways to get them baptized. Yeah. Within the church, because the parents thought it was very important for their babies to be baptized that they so that they, you know, would not go to hell or to purgatory. They wanted their babies to yeah. go to heaven in case something happened yeah. to them. So some of the things that she would do is like she would like go to the priest and kind of like vouch for this, like the baby. She would say like, oh, I know this mother. I know this woman very well. She was married when she had this baby, but her husband has died. We don't know what happened to her. Like, oh, he's away on a ship, on a voyage. We haven't heard right. back from him, but it needs to be baptized. And so she was helping them a lot with things like that. But there were problems also socially. So that was like religiously. Yeah. But there were a lot of problems socially that just weren't being addressed for women that are like domestic violence. Mm-hmm. there's like not a whole lot of recourse for that. Or even women who wanted to get married, have their husbands like be able to get married to them, stay married to them because women also don't have a lot of power in like buying and owning land or anything right. like that. And that's where the spirits come in because Marie Laveau felt that, you know, the Virgin Mary would be very understanding to women's issues. Yeah. And so there was a lot of ritual that she could take from like voodoo original roots, apply them to Christianity and come up with what I guess what we would consider like spells if we were saying it in like a like a witchy way, yeah. but they were rituals. Like it's a fits a religion. They're rituals, yeah. um, and so she came up with different rituals that would help those problems that they were seeing. And even if those problems were only being fixed psychologically, 
if you don't believe in voodoo, then like there's still a psychological benefit Mm -hmm. that like people can get from that. Or if you do believe in voodoo, then she was actually helping these women by putting like doing this like ritual spell work and stuff right on them. So she was doing a lot to help people also because they were, because life was very hard for black people. And there were a lot of slaves. Marie Laveau was a free woman of color, Mm -hmm. but there were a lot of slaves. Obviously this is the South in like the 1800s. Yeah. And so her and her husband would help runaway slaves and they would help to give power through like voodoo to people who were still inside of slavery or who had run away from slavery. And I'm trying to remember what patron saint they turned to. Cause there was one saint that they would turn to for that because they figured that he would understand what it was like to be a runaway mm-hmm. or John the Baptist was beheaded. And so they were like, Oh, he would obviously want to help people who are going to like be executed or like, and so there was a lot of that like voodoo tie in that went really well with Catholicism, but white people didn't understand it. They were scared of black people anyway. Mm -hmm. And so when people are writing about voodoo, if like, if they were white at the time, they were always writing about it. One, it's interesting to me, they were writing about it as if it was real. And that's because they really believed in demons. And so they were really, they were really and truly afraid that voodoo was going to be used against them. That it was like the power of the devil that was going to like come and get them. Right. That makes sense. It's like, cause if they believe in demons and an afterlife and stuff like that, and there are these other people that are praying to these spirits that aren't the spirits that they know and that they're familiar with then well they must be demonic in nature or evil in nature or whatever so i can totally understand where that was coming from yeah where it like it came from a real place of fear partially based on racism though so yeah it's like it's complicated because it is like oh no like if you already believed in one thing like then you're going to believe that the other thing is possible and then be terrified. Yeah, it's like being afraid doesn't make it right. And being understandable that they would think that way also doesn't mean that it's right. Yeah. Clearly. Um, but what these stories started to be able to do was that the black people who believed in the voodoo could feel empowered by the thought of justice through voodoo, through getting back at those who were harming them, controlling them and treating them like animals, treating them badly. They felt like they could get back at them, even if it was just hearing stories and telling stories where voodoo was powerful enough to solve injustice. Mm -hmm. And you have a story about that that was recorded by somebody way, way better and sh- who should be way more important to people <laughs> than the last guy I told you about. Jeff is going to tell us a story that's actually by Zora Neale Hurston from the book Mules and Men. She was a black novelist, a folklorist, and an anthropologist. And one of the first things that one of the first projects that she did was going to Florida 
to record stories, folk stories from people in Florida, and then going and recording voodoo stories. But because she was a black woman in America in the 1930s, guess whose book that was way more sensationalized got way more attention? The dude I already told you about. I'm not even going to keep naming his name, but... (laughs) Zora Neale Hurston, actually, she was part of the Federalist Writers Project at one point, too, but she was was assigned to do more work in Florida since she had already done a lot of work in Florida, which super bums me out because I really wish that they had sent her to New Orleans on her project because that's just, you know, my personal I wish moment. But Jeff, tell us a story that will... Solve some injustice. Yes. And this story was something that was collected as, you know, I'm not sure if it falls under the like tall tale kind of idea or whatever. But anyway, it's a story. It's like she didn't write it. She was a novelist as well, but she didn't write it. This is a story that she had heard from someone else. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. Correct. Yes. And it does, it falls into this weird, like, it's not a tall tale. It's almost like an urban legend. Right. So I don't know. Maybe somebody can like contact us and be like, actually, it's this. Right. Because that'd be great. Because it's not a ghost story. There's no ghosts. It's kind of an urban legend. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you'll see in a second when I read it, but like almost everything that occurred in this could have actually literally happened, except for the things that were like, oh, this was attributed to, this happened because of, you know, voodoo. Just like the first story where it was like, it could have rained, all that they could have fallen through the thing, all this stuff could have happened, could have happened. But it just wasn't the fault of voodoo that it did, as mentioned in the story. So anyway, this is about a wealthy middle Georgian planter. And he was super duper racist. He bragged about himself being unreconstructed. So basically pushing back on the whole post-Civil War reconstruction thing. And he didn't like black people. And he didn't let them sass him, to quote the story. Yeah. And he's 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 awful. We're all going to agree to hate this guy and it's going to turn out well <laughs> for us in the end. So he had some servants that were black that worked for him and the father worked in the yard. The mom was a cook. They had a, a son that worked in the field and a daughter that worked in the house and kind of waited on the table. And so one night this guy was eating so, like a big rib roast. And for some reason he was just being a jerk and he kind of sp- yelled at at the girl servant and you know the fact that she was a young girl getting yelled at you know sassed him back supposedly and so he just jumped up grabbed like the entire rack of ribs and hit her with it and so she like drops dead pretty much on the spot and so the cook comes in and the the white dude the wealthy guy just sits back and continues eating and starts getting more food and you know, he says, you know, go and, and get the girl's mother and Dave, who was one of the other servants. He's like, and she's like, pick her up off the floor and deal with her. You know, I was like, geez, you just killed somebody and you're not even going to interrupt your and own supper for like, it. Yeah, he's just like licking the sauce like off of his fingers. I, what a jerk. Anyway, so Dave came and the parents took away the body of the daughter. And Dave, he was also a black man and he was known to dabble in, in, in hoodoo. And so, you know, lots of the black people around there depended on him for those sorts of needs. So, you know, he came back to clear away the blood of the murdered girl and scrubbing it, but he stopped and he put 
uh, a handkerchief of blood into his pocket and then he kind of washed up the floor. So the family having their daughter just been murdered was like, we don't want to be around here anymore. We're just going to go away. And they didn't think, you know, knowing the kind of situation at the time, they didn't expect any justice from the government or whatever. So they thought better than to make a fuss, I guess. And they moved away. So a couple weeks later, this jerk old rich planter looked out the window and he thought he saw Dave running across the lawn to his house. So he got up and was like going to yell out and demand to know what he was doing. But the, you know, the Dave or who he thought was Dave just ran off into the, into the trees. And so he shut the window and went to his wife, his wife's room to tell her all about it. And she was just laughing, just laughing, 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 laughing. And she laughed for three days straight. And all the doctors that he took her to couldn't figure out anything to do with her. And so on the fourth day, they were, she just apparently went, you know, even more crazy and she attacked her husband. And so they were like, wow, she's just kind of helplessly insane. So they had her committed to an institution. And, you know, she never made any attempt to hurt anyone else except for her husband. And so after a little while, the plantation this guy lived on became kind of like intolerable to him. He's like, I don't like this place. So he decided, you know, he's going to move to South Carolina. So after about- what was frustrating to me is he was like, like, oh, it holds too many like bad memories. And I'm like, you mean like when you murdered a person, yeah. like you for real murdered a person and kept eating. But no, he means like his wife attacking it was just like him. hard. F- yeah, he's like, this is hard for me personally. So, yeah, he moves to South Carolina and then two years go by and he starts getting a little bit, you know, more cheerful. And then one night he hears steps outside his window. He looks out and he th- sees who he thinks is Dave yet again. And just the same, this guy who he thinks is Dave runs away. And, you know, he calls from the house. He went after him. He's like, this planter is like, I'm going to kill him. He was chasing him. He's like, oh, man, thinking maybe I'm being led into a trap. He runs back into the house to get his gun and his dogs and everything. But as he gets into the front door, he gets hit on the head and is knocked unconscious. And it was his own son who was standing above him screaming and he kept hitting his father and hitting his father. And the, the you know, the planters like trying to dodge these blows from his son uh, until the housekeeper could run up and just stop this son from, you know, beating his own father to death. And apparently even later, you know, that night the son tried to attack the father again. And this happened, kept happening for like over a month that the son would just start randomly trying to attack the father. So the father had his son put away into uh, an institution. And so he was like really, really upset about this fact because he tried to be able to live with and help his son as long as he could, but he just wasn't able to get his son to stop attacking him. And so once again, he gets his stuff, he moves away. And then about a year later, he sees another, uh, you know, visitation of who he thinks is Dave at his new place. And he was sure that it was Dave. So he locks himself in his room and, you know, he asked the housekeeper that's there with him to look after his daughter. But the housekeeper's like, oh, my gosh, your daughter's gone missing. And so he thought that this family had come back and, you know, stolen his daughter because he had murdered theirs. And so he gets up and he's ready to chase after these old Dave and who try to find his daughter. And as soon as he steps out the door and is getting ready to, you know, put on his coat to go outside, he finds his daughter outside the door with a gun in his face and she pulls the trigger and... Fortunately for him, it was not loaded because in her, you know, own whatever state that she was in, she had forgotten to to load the gun. So he's like, oh, my gosh, this place is not good. And he thinks, 
old Dave knows where he lives in this time. So he moves again this time to Baltimore. And similar to before, for whatever reason, the daughter kind of had gone insane. And she not only this one time tried to kill her father, but she kept trying to kill her dad repeatedly after that. I just love this like idea of him living in this house where this woman just keeps like weakly trying to like murder yeah. him. And so he had a nurse that would come and care for the daughter. And so he kept loaded guns nearby. And But he had to keep them hidden from his daughter, who we had proved before that she was going to totally willing to try to shoot him. And, you know, even though he's living in this house, he's living in this house with his daughter and has a nurse taking care of her. He still has to try to stop her from killing him. But she's just like occasionally beats on him with her fists. So he's like, you know what? Maybe I can get my son out of the institution that he's in and he can come live with me because this guy, despite all his many, many horriblenesses, loved his children. So he goes down to try to get his son released. They get the son in the backseat of the car and as they're about to drive back, the son does what he had tried to do before and starts trying to attack the father yet again. And he would have killed him except for, you know, a policeman and some other people came in and, and, and stopped that from happening. The end, as far as we know. All right. If I'm going to retell the story, like if I was the storyteller and I had license to change the story, ugh, yeah, I just wish that it had ended with like, and then the son like, you know, choked out his dad while his dad was driving and they swerved and crashed and like, then this man finally Yeah, narratively dead. it would be tied up a lot better than it actually was. But oh well. So the power of that story is that... Horrible, unjust things were constantly happening to black people in America. Mm -hmm. That's the fact. And so many of these people were not getting the justice that they deserved. You know, what, like good things, it wasn't, good things weren't happening to good people. Life was horrible. And these stories of just hearing somebody getting what's coming to them is so cathartic and it can be healing and empowering, even if it's not 100% yeah. true and to use something, a power that is so unique to their culture and the South using voodoo to like destroy somebody. Yeah. Like that. It just, it feels good as a story. It feels good. I mean, even like what I was saying of like, don't worry, he is a horrible person, but like he's going to now have a terrible life. Yeah. Even though he might not be a real person, I still want him to get what's coming to yeah. him. And when there's somebody that you can be picturing and imagining in your life that's doing something unjust to you, you can put them in your mind like in that story and it just feels cathartic to you know, witness something bad happening to them for justice to finally be served. Even if it's by magical means, even if it's by harnessing the power of voodoo. Mm -hmm. So stories of voodoo and also practicing voodoo is a way that people could feel empowered. Mm -hmm. And we still use storytelling to do this, to like empower people. And there was power in practicing voodoo for the people who are practicing it. But there is also power in the stories that people would tell each other, the like, I guess, miracle stories that they'd 
told each other about like, oh, I was finally able to get my husband to stop beating me or I got my lover to stay with me or to commit to me, to marry me. Mm-hmm. Or, um, just, I was able to scare away people who are hurting me or even other spells that people said that they used to, um, help them in court. Whether it was getting, getting a judge to be lenient on their, um, sentence by using the power of voodoo, mm-hmm. the stories, made people feel like they had more control over their lives because if they practice the voodoo, then they maybe could have that same control over their lives. And especially when they were living in a culture and a society where they didn't have a lot of control in their lives, there was a lot that was out of their control. So whether Marie Laveau was both of them, either one mother or daughter was really harnessing a power from the other side or whether it just made people feel better. Marie Laveau is a very important character in new Orleans and definitely like the most important person when you're talking about voodoo in new Orleans and voodoo in the United States. If people want to read a good book that has facts about the Marie Laveau's, and their lives instead of just some random guy's salacious story gathering. I read the book Voodoo Queen, The Spirit Lives of Marie Laveau by Martha Ward. And that had a lot of really good information just about the real story behind the people with a little bit of the fantastical to just to spice things up but she lets people know when it's a story that is not corroborated by fact so it's really interesting to learn about the history of what was going on in the area and then about the real person so if people want to check that out i definitely recommend it so to anybody out there who is going to be celebrating through mardi gras season or even if you listen to this episode after the fact just want to wish you guys a happy mardi gras thank you for listening to the fairy tellers if you are enjoying what we're doing please support us by leaving us a review or share us with your friends special thanks to andrew forey for our music and clarice inch for our artwork this episode contains additional music from Kevin McLeod at Incompetech Music. Check him out at Incompetech.com. If you are a dreamer, come in. If you are a dreamer, a wisher, a liar, a hoper, a prayer, a magic bean buyer. If you're a pretender, come sit by my fire, for we have some flax golden tails to spin. Come in, come in. Invitation by Shel Silverstein. How was your Valentine's Day, by the way? It was great, but I left before the sexual orgy started. (laughs) See, now that's a crying shame.